Mental illness and four acts. I have bipolar disorder, but I didn't always call it that. When I was 15, I first became aware of how my body and brain didn't always work quite right because sometimes I would suddenly become enveloped in a sparkly, colorful, and beautiful swell of euphoria that saved me and swallowed me whole. I later learned to call this act hypomania, but I didn't need words back then. I just needed to hold on to this deliriously intoxicating invincibility. I was only introduced to the name bipolar when I was 17, and I felt out of control, agitated, lost, and so overwhelmingly blurry that I was taken to the first of many psychiatrists. I was diagnosed and the doctor told me this act is mania. At 19, I learned the phrase mania with psychotic features when I capsized under the raging torrent of this illness as it obstructed and disrupted my everyday life. I learned to pair that feeling with that name while on the inpatient unit. Psychosis felt like I was on fire and cracking erratically into fragments. Act one, hypomania. Act two, mania. Act three, psychosis. But when did I first feel depression? Act four, depression. I've never been in love with, morbidly curious about, or as scared of that state, so I always forget act four. I forget until it is too late and I feel nothing, but it's aching hopelessness and I wonder if I will feel this way forever. Or maybe I will always feel this way, but I am just too easily sidetracked, waiting for acts one through three, living acts acts one through three, acting out acts one through three. Act four robs me of all momentum as I suffocate in the numbness and the nothing that we call depression. A name and feelings I want to forget and never feel again. Welcome to season two of the Mental Illness Spotlight. My name is Alyssa Seifer and I'm your host today. This season on the Mental Illness Spotlight, we'll be looking at perspectives and experiences outside of traditional mental health, interviewing local activists and advocates, discussing radical mental health topics, and prioritizing the voices of people with lived experience of mental illness and madness. Important note before we start, the opinions expressed on this show are not professional advice and should not be used as a substitute for your own self-care, wellness, or treatment plan. Also, I want to mention this show has a trigger warning of suicide, self-harm, hospitalization, and substance abuse. And without further ado, today our guest is Rachel Callum Whitman. Rachel is a professor, advocate, writer, and most importantly, tattoo and cheese enthusiast. Welcome, Rachel. Hi, Alyssa. It's really great to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me onto the show. Oh, yeah. I'm really excited to speak today. Um, and so just to get our listeners acquainted, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're passionate about. Hi. Yeah. So I'm passionate about um, the discipline of disability studies, and I um, am excited that I get to teach young people every day about what it is like living in an ableist society, meaning disability oppression. Um, and the reason I started kind of going down this path was because of my personal relationship with disability. And as someone who grew up um, with bipolar disorder and a few other diagnoses kind of tacked on to the end, uh, I realized that the world necessarily wasn't built for people like me. And that realization at first was overwhelming and caused a lot of anxiety and depression. But as I 
better understood my illnesses and, and the world around me, I was able to navigate and narrate it much better. And so that's why um, becoming a professor has been so meaningful in order to kind of give back to that community. So I'm definitely passionate about teaching. I'm passionate about mental health. And I have over 40 tattoos. So I think I can say safely that I'm also passionate about that. And for dinner, I ate like a wedge of brie. So also the cheese and tattoo thing is solid. There you go. That is a great dinner. <laughs> Definitely. So if I, I don't know if you really have this, but do you have a favorite tattoo? Do I have a favorite tattoo? Usually the last one that I get <laughs> is, my, is my favorite. Um, but I did get a tattoo to commemorate um a really rather uh, kind of solidify my, my relationship with self-harm. And so I got a tattoo of a pair of scissors and they the scissors are wrapped in vines and the flower is a moonflower, which is my partner's favorite flower. And so for me, it represents this idea of love coming through and helping. It's not that love saved me, but it was a source of strength that really helped me um, turn away for some of these negative coping techniques um to more positive ones like mm -hmm. eating cheese for dinner it's a very positive <laughs> coping mechanism that is so awesome well yes i'm so glad to have you on today and i guess to start we can dive more into how you originally got involved in the mental health and disability community how your entrance into this community was informed by your live experience um whatever parts you'd like to share with our listeners and how that got you to where you are today. Great, that is a really good uh, set of questions. So I grew up in the, um, a suburb of DC and I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was 17 years old. And at the time, um, the label was really traumatizing to get this diagnosis. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know the implications of it. My school was a uh, quick, quick to spread rumors. And so soon the um, fact that I had a diagnosis was kind of public knowledge. And the set of expectations for me suddenly changed. I was an, you know, an overachiever in high school, 4.0 GPA. I was, you know, secretary for the student government. I um, was involved in a lot of sports. I was terrible at them, but I was still involved. Um, and, you know, originally I had kind of been you know, conditioned to say, oh, I'm going to go to college. And that was kind of the conversation. Where are you applying? You know, what's your dream school? What's your uh, fallback school? And as soon as I got this diagnosis, and again, it kind of started circulating around my school, the conversation shifted to more about things that I can't do than things that I can. And honestly, for me, that just led to a lot of um, shame-based uh, ways to understand my illness. And so instead of kind of fight reclaiming it or fighting against it, I was 17. You know, it's a really rough time in your life for a lot of people. I was dealing with a lot of stuff too. So throughout my um, high school and then my college experiences, I was like, fuck treatment. I really, you know, railed against anything that could have helped me kind of in the name of being defiant. Um, to be honest, I think I had to do that. I think there were some dangerous aspects um, of my behavior, but I really had to learn more about who I am. And, you know, basically after I graduated from college and I relocated to Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh was like, I'm starting over. 
Pittsburgh was my opportunity to clean up my act, to do things, not like the right way, but the right way for me and figure out what that was. So that is how I kind of came to this community. I moved to Pittsburgh and realized that I had a home here, not just in terms of geography, but a community and people who cared about me where we were having these open and honest conversations about mental health that I had never, ever had access to before. And so I think when I moved to Pittsburgh and found myself surrounded by people who had also lived with mental illness and, and were currently living with it, it was like um, a dress rehearsal to practice my my own story, Talk, talking to people and you know, kind of having these types of conversations, it made me more um, uh, solid when it came to understanding myself. And so as that grew, the sense of agency and autonomy and, and ownership, I was like, fuck, I need to give back. Like now is the time I'm healthy, you know, I'm doing really well. And there are young people like me going through the stuff that I went through. So that's kind of how I like circled back into originally being ashamed of being mentally ill to really embracing it as a part of my identity. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, and then kind of coming into your life right now, um, I wanted to know, previously we mentioned that you're a professor. Mm -hmm. uh, you're a professor in psychology. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I want to know what it's like working in academia as someone with a mental health diagnosis or disability, and especially since you are teaching classes about this topic that you have lived experience in. Um, what is that like for you? Academia is so snobby. <laughs> it really is. I mean, I, I really love teaching. It is something really meaningful. You know, I definitely think it's my calling. But yeah, yeah, you know, the higher ed system here is very elitist. Uh, it's very classist. It's ableist. It's racist. You know, all of the ists really come into play. And ha having this lived experience, it was interesting. I think in some ways, let me start. I, I'm very blessed. I have a lot of privilege. I'm an educated, affluent white woman, uh, you know, cisgender um, my queerness is, is kind of erased a little bit because I'm married to a cisgender, cisgender man. And yeah, I mean, I think one of the things about being a uh, professor in psychology is not in all schools, obviously, there's a little bit of wiggle room for uh, being eccentric, maybe, mm. being a little crazy that kind of adds to your credibility, honestly. <laughs> uh, so I'm able to go into and teach and I am not, I'm out. I'm really out as being bipolar. You know, my students know when it comes up kind of organically. Um, if they Googled me, it's the first thing that they would find. Same with my uh, supervisors. Um, so yeah, so I'm able to kind of get away with a lot of it. Um, the stuff that is really problematic though, it's funny because, so a lot of people will say, are you going to go get tenure? And the reality is, my brain will break if I try to do the rigor of going through those steps. I know myself. And so at this point, I can really say, you know what? That's not something that I can pursue. And it's funny because people will respond, mostly in academia, they'll respond by saying like, oh, just believe in yourself. Like, <laughs> you can do it. You're so smart. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm smart as fuck. Like, that's not up, you know, for discussion here. 
Um, it's more the fact that I know my limitations and this doesn't mean I don't believe in myself. It just means when you live with a disability or mental illness, you have these limitations that impact your life and you understand them, work around them, kind of make your peace with them. So in that way, I've been able to have conversations with people a little bit more openly. But for me, when it came to being in academia, the hardest experience or the roughest I had was when I was a disability services coordinator, actually. And here I was, this was my office, and I wasn't getting accommodations that I needed. I was in a very stressful situation. I had a ridiculous caseload. And, you know, I, and we're going to get to this, you know, in a bit, I'm sure. But after working in this job that was high stress, I didn't have a lot of support. My mental health was fraying didn't really realize it um, until I had a psychotic break. And that happened in 2014. And it was one of these situations where, you know, this suicide attempt saved my life, really, because it made me um, figure out that I, I had to do things better, that this wasn't healthy for me. Mm -hmm. And then through your academia, not just career, but while you were getting your um, graduate degrees. Mm. Were you out the whole time as having a mental illness? I I was out the whole time for my master's and for my doc work. Um, and that felt really empowering, to be mm. honest. In undergrad, I was in hiding. I, you know, this was something that if, when my roommate would come into the room, I would hide my medication you know, I wasn't really taking it. Sorry, mom. Um, <laughs> but yeah. And so like, for me, my identity was really designed around fooling people. And then I moved to Pittsburgh and I do my graduate work. And I realized so much of who I am, like, adds to the content of my classes and the papers I'm writing and reading. And so it's not that I view bipolar disorder as something other than an illness. I, I kind of, I do buy into the illness model, um, but the reality of the situation is I'll always have it. So I got to put it to good use, mm -hmm. basically. You know, when I hear not just your story, but the fact that you can teach classes, be an openly bipolar, mentally ill, whatever um, label someone uses, and be successful in that field and have colleagues accept you, that's empowering for me to see that, you know? And I think there's probably a lot of our listeners that are very inspired by that. I know when I was in grad school, generally people were not out, mm. but it might have been because we weren't in psychology. Right. But mm -hmm. then I know psychology people that can't be out because there's a lot of stigma in their departments. Yeah. So it's really great to hear you kind of speak about this whole experience. So thank you very much oh, for that. Oh, of course. Um, and now... Moving on to another facet of your multifaceted life. Um, I sound so exciting. You are very exciting. I sound like I do more than just eat cheese at my house. So that's, that is awesome. I mean, you're Keep, here. That's true, I'm here. We do not have cheese at this podcast, sadly. We have water and tea and that my works. dog. But, but yeah, anyways, um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your writing as well. Um the excerpt you, you read at the beginning of the podcast was so powerful and I'm familiar with your writing and I've always thought it was so deeply honest as well as beautiful and it's sometimes soft. Mm. Like all of these things that seem contradictory at the same time. 
it really, for me, has that whole sphere of what it's like to live with a mental illness or madness. So I'd like to know why you decided to start writing and start sharing that writing with the world, uh, most importantly. Why you decided to be public about it and discuss your life so openly. Oh, well, well, thank you. That's some really nice um, critique of my writing. I really do appreciate that. And that's kind of the message I try to send. So mm-hmm. I'm glad that is uh, loud and clear. Um, yeah, so I have been, I've been a writer for forever. I mean, even when I was a kid, I still have these composition notebooks with this <laughs> shitty poetry, you know, about popsicles and stuff like that. You know, popsicles are great. But um, yeah, and so... I had been writing, I kind of had just been amassing poems and essays and ideas and all of these things over the years and kind of just kept them to myself. I um, I kind of grew up being a secret keeper and where I experienced childhood trauma and um, addition to my mental health stuff. And so a lot of my responses and coping was, well, I'm going to protect the people around me by not telling them what was going on in my life. And in a way, this gave me a a, kind of a sense of strength that here I am, I can keep these secrets and I'm still standing, kind of moving through the world. Um, But in my case, that catches up with you. And that is a really, for me, it was a really toxic way to disrespect myself and my own um, right to being healthy. And the reason though, that I started writing and then publish it or putting it out posting it putting it out into the universe was after my um suicide attempt in 2014 so I had a psychotic break and my husband was traveling and he was due to get in it was a Friday night his his plane was going to be landing around 10 and I had just spent the week getting progressively sicker and not realizing it because for a lot of people with mental health issues you lose objectivity you, you don't see yourself as becoming sick you this is who you are you've always felt this way it makes sense to you and so as i got progressively sicker i didn't know how to communicate that and i became psychotic and i was under the impression that he was dead hmm. And so my mind made this, my illness made this story that he had died. And my response was, well, I don't want to live in a world without him. And that's when there were, um, there was construction going on near my house and I was going to walk to the bridge and jump off. Um, and you know, I started, left the house. I started to go. My husband, um, managed to, he, his plane landed. We were, had been talking on the phone. He figured out where I was, uh, and he found me and that saved my life. And after I got, I left the toxic job. I realized my medication had plateaued and wasn't working. I swapped out a real shitty psychiatrist for a, a one who, um, was more attentive and, and holistic And I realized under, you know, I have this wonderful therapist that I needed to start accepting my illness and owning it in a way that for me personally, making it public was kind of um, a a way to combat shame, Mm -hmm. I guess. And the thing is, you know, and I've talked to people about blogging about mental health stuff before And it's not, the opposite of shame is not owing everyone your story. You have to make those decisions yourself. 
And so that was where the my medium page was born from was I'm going to put these uh, pieces about what it is like to live with my illness to live as me. And I'm gonna be honest with you, when I started, I was like, this is for me, like, this will help me heal. You know, I don't think it'll reach anybody, you know, and so so it was very self serving. Um, but it was therapeutic. And then, you know, over the couple since then, I've gotten more than 3000 followers on medium, I'm, I'm doing a lot of the advocacy activist stuff. And it feels incredible to be able to put pieces of myself out, mm-hmm. parts of my heart out there and have people respond, you know, and I think one of my favorite responses was a young man and he was from the Middle East and he said, the most beautiful words in any language are you are not alone. And that was kind of another cornerstone of like, shit, like we aren't alone, but we have to keep raising our voices or we're going to forget about each other. And so that was another way to keep the the medium going, but also to reach out more to the community and find other ways to um, be be a force when I can. Yeah, and I love um, one quote you said that the opposite of shame isn't owing everyone your story. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Um, yeah, so that came from basically when I first started, uh, I was like, I'm going to put out, my writings. I'm going to, I'm going to make that attempt. Um, I thought, oh, no discretion. I have to put everything out there. I'm going to own it. If people don't accept it, then they don't understand me. I shouldn't have them in my life. And I'm just barreling through all of this content. But just because I wrote it didn't mean I processed it very well in the Mm -hmm. beginning as I was putting things out there that then family members and friends and the community would see and be like, oh, so you want to talk about binging on cocaine? And I was like, oh, no, I don't want to talk about that at all. But I put that out into the Mm -hmm. universe, you know, and cyberspace is forever. Um, So I realized that I'm not ashamed, but I'm not obligated. Mm -hmm. I share what I share when I want to. There are parts of my life that I don't share. There are periods of time where I'm not in the right headspace if I'm symptomatic or going through something. So for me, a big part of my journey was realizing I didn't owe everybody everything Mm -hmm. and that it's got to be on my terms or else it's going to be, you know, it's going to, it'll come back and bite me, really. Well, thanks for sharing that. Oh, of course. um, So since we just talked so much about your writing... Where can our listeners read your writing and follow you online? So I have a Medium page. It is medium at R. Callum Whitman. Um, but I'm sure, Alyssa, if you don't mind leaving the link for people, mm-hmm. it's easier to click on it. And yeah, I, and I cover a lot of topics. And Alyssa did a, you know, I really appreciated doing the trigger warning. Um, because a lot of the stuff, not everything, but a fair amount is heavy stuff. I mean... In the mental health community, and I'm not saying this to be trivializing, like, we have baggage. Like, whether it's, you know, the wrong diagnosis, shitty access to healthcare, toxic relationships, people who didn't understand us, you know, being kind of isolated. So a fair amount of my writing is kind of addressing the fact that, hey, I have suicidal ideation. That is a part of living with my mental illness. I'm not acting on it, but it is kind of static noise in the back of my mind. 
Um, and that's something people don't want to talk about. If, you know, there's a lot of people have negative experiences say, oh, I told my therapist that I kind of had these thoughts and being, you know, committed or being viewed as non-compliant to your treatment. Um, yeah, I mean, that has a really terrible backfire result. And, and so for me, being able to find the space to say, hey, yeah, I don't, I'm not going to act on it, but I think about suicide and I think about self-injury. Um, I have moments where I think, oh my gosh, if I could just get my hands on X, Y, and Z drug, or if I could just be manic again, kind of chasing some of these dragons. And so, you know, I think the medium is a great place for me, um, to, to share my story and for people to read it. But I do advise people to, to read cautiously because there is content that can, be triggering. And, you know, I think not just for people who have lived experience, but if family members read it, um, that is, that is one person's perspective. So I like to have a little disclaimer because not everybody has experienced things the way that I have. Um, and they don't articulate it the same way. That's the thing that's so beautiful about mental health narratives. You know, they're all unique because we're all unique people, but mental illness is universal. Mm-hmm. So kind of looking at this idea that we all have important things to say and we can come together and support each other. Um, but again, we're all different. So our outcomes, our goals, our experiences are going to be very, very different. And that's not a bad thing. That's just, you know, people complex. We're complex creatures. So. And yeah, we'll put the link to Rachel's medium page in our show notes so that everyone can see it. Thank you. And then I just want to ask, you don't have to answer, but do you have any plans on publishing your work or distributing it more widely? Yes, I am looking to do that. Uh, That is something that right now I'm pursuing. I'm kind of in conversation with uh, some potential um, publishers, but also kind of like with myself, like, what am I going to share? What parts? Again, I'm not obligated to share everything. So I am, yeah, I'm moving in that direction and it feels it feels scary and exciting, but like in a good way. Like when you're like, I'm so excited, I'm going to puke, kind of like that nervous excitement. I kind of live in that space anyway, but yeah. So it's definitely moving forward. It's a goal of mine. So to end the podcast, I just want to know, Rachel, if you have any final thoughts or advice for our listeners? Yeah. So, you know, I think when it comes to talking about mental health and mental illness, Yeah, we're the center of our stories, you know, as we kind of move through our experiences. But I think being cognizant of the world around us is really, really important. And now, you know, the political climate, things that our nation is going through, the world looking at oppressed people, marginalized individuals, um, you know, I think allyship now more than ever is so important in a variety of causes. Um, and so something, another thing that I recommend that people do is when you talk about anything, but in this case, mental health, talk to people who don't look like you because, you know, I think again, I'm a white woman. And so my experiences of, of, of being mentally ill are drastically different than someone, uh, you know, a person of color. Um, and that kind of thing. And so intersectionality, this idea that, you know, people have like doubly marginalized identities based on a lot of these factors and kind of, you know, systemic um, inequities. And, you know, 
I think we're only going to grow as individuals and as a community when we realize that we have to open up our circles to include people who are different. And that I think is, um, that's, you know, that's kind of what I would say to anybody who's kind of trying to enter the, the mental health space or are already there, but realize that we're not really doing enough for other people. Well, that's great advice. Thank you so much for coming on, Rachel. And we'll be back next month with another episode. So be sure to subscribe to this podcast through iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're a local listener in the Pittsburgh area, check out our website at www.insideourminds.org or our social media pages for our upcoming events. We have a number of meetups scheduled, as well as our popular anonymous open mic series, returning Wednesday, January 23rd at 6.30 p.m. at Repair the World. Yay! Yay! (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's been waiting for this, so. And finally, please consider sending us a donation at the link in our show notes. Inside Our Minds relies heavily on donations from supporters like you. Your donation supports programs like Mental Health Cafe, which provides free mutual aid and peer support for members of our community, as well as anonymous open mic. So thanks for tuning in to the Mental Illness Spotlight. I am filled with the brightest of lights, radiating from my shining moonlit eyes, tumbling, twinkling starlight, sparking from my parted lips, fingertips that glow and pulse, Footsteps kicking spheres of sunshine across my streets. My ears hear the lightest, loveliest music and the loudest, brilliant illuminations. Engulfed. Overwhelming love that emanates from this cherished light I hold in my chest. That pours out of this tiny, insignificant person I pretend to be. But truly, I am nothing but stars and moons and suns colliding in a young woman vessel. I beam and brim and seem like everyone else, but I truly shine with the gift of light that others will never know. It crawls deep inside me and nestles in every organ, and if you cut me open, I will bleed firelight. Inflamed, I beam so brightly for you until I set my brain on fire.